Thank you, Lucas. Good job, bud. Appreciate you. Again, glad everybody's here today. We are in the final chapter, uh, week 22, which is our reading of actually week 21 of the story. Hope you've been following along, excited about transitioning over the next couple weeks into the New Testament and seeing what God has for us. But so glad that you're here this morning. I don't know if you know this or not, but there was one time that I was probably one of the best parents in the country. I mean, I was incredible. I had wisdom, I had insight, I had all this knowledge. I had never lost my temper at my kids. I had never shown them a bad example. If somebody came to me and asked me about parenting expertise and advice, I had it. I was great. I mean, I can admit that. I was 25 years old, I was married, and I had no kids. <laughs> right? I don't know how many of you have been there before. Today, as we talk about Nehemiah, we're going to talk about a little bit about Family, not just family like mom, dad, and kids, but family is in all of us. But I got to admit, parenting since those days is hard. Leading others is hard. It's difficult. Where else is there's, there's things like in parenting and grandparenting where it seems like so many things are against you? Where is it else you can experience something like a three-year-old running to the room, half choking, crying, tears coming out of their eyes. You think their life is ending and all they have is an itchy tag on the back of their shirt, right? Where else can you experience something like a kid who at one meal loves grapes, but in the next 24 hours later, we saw this at Life Group, 24 hours later, they hate grapes and how dare you put them on their plate, Right? I got to admit, somehow kids, I don't know how y'all do it, kids and teens, I don't know where you plan these things, but I could swear that my kids at some point, when they'd be off playing in the room together, they would look at each other and say, hey, you want to pick at each other until one of us cries? And the other would say, no, we both got to cry. Okay, all right, it's a deal. And they would get after it, right? It's difficult. Every part of life is difficult, but I got to admit, it's not just parenting that's difficult. Being a parent's hard. I will let you guys in on a little insight about parenting, teens, just as a little side note. And kids, I hope you're paying attention, young children, okay? You guys got this, and I hate to let the cat out of the bag, moms and dads, grandparents. We have no clue what we're doing, <laughs> okay? There are no parenting experts. We're just going day to day. The job description changes all the time. It is difficult. But I got to admit, too, so is being a teen, so is being a kid, so is being single in this world, so is being married in this world. It's difficult being an empty nester, grandparent, great-grandparent. I think we can all admit that just being family is hard. They have that saying, it's on the screen, that it says it takes a village to raise a child. And that's true, but in truth, more than that popular saying, it takes a village to raise a village. It takes a village to be an adult. It takes a village to be a grandparent. It takes a village to parent well. It takes a village to be a healthy church. So as we wrapped up the Old Testament this week in the reading of our story, we walked through Malachi, some of the last prophet in our Protestant Bible. We walked through Nehemiah and Ezra. It's portions of the texts that deal with this return home after 70 years of exile. It's rebuilding of the walls and the temple in Jerusalem. 
Thematically, it is about this rebuilding, but really more than that, this section of the closing of the Old Testament is about a crisis not just of construction, but a crisis of identity. The question of leadership on Ezra and Nehemiah's mind is one of how do we put not a wall back together, but how do we put the hearts of the people, our identity, our community, how do we raise a village? We're going to focus this morning on Nehemiah. This time in which some of the stuff's being rebuilt, Ezra's done some things, you hear about that later, but there's still this major problem. In Nehemiah, the wall is torn. The city of Jerusalem is exposed. There's threats from the outside coming in. Groups of people who don't want, don't want to see the return of the beauty of Jerusalem. Threats of these former exiles. And after 70 years, there's all kinds of trouble and fraught and fright and hardship. But Nehemiah is able to do something so spectacular that we're going to see today as we kind of take a 10,000-foot view at this little book. He rallies the people not only to rebuild the wall, but he does it in 52 days. But the key for us today and where we're going to focus is not on what he built. The truth that Nehemiah reveals is this long sentence, or a couple sentences I've got up there. What I think Nehemiah is about is that what you build is important, Yes, but equally important is who you build with and what happens in you as you build. Because Nehemiah is not a story of construction. It's a story of transformation. It's a story of identity crisis turning back towards community. Nehemiah teaches the reader that through this identity crisis, when you call a village to raise a village, God does incredible things. So as you guys turn your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's page 295 if you have your story Bible. If you're new to us and don't have a story Bible yet, we've got one for you out in the foyer. Love to get you one of those as we start reading the New Testament next week. But I want to emphasize this as you go to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to talk today about church as family and family as church. Two things that I know in this world sometimes get uh, dualistically opposed, but they're not. Family is church, church is family. And what they share in common is beautiful. Church and family are the only two places I can think of on earth where you have a role, you have a job, you have a position, you have importance, no matter your age or your stage. In church and family, grandparents, your job is never done. Parents, you still have something to do. In church and family, teens and students and children, they are vital as anyone else. I think what we're going to see today is that there is no retirement plan in the kingdom of God because what you build is important. But who you build with and what happens in you as you build is equally, if not more, important. Let's look at Nehemiah and let's see why it takes a village to raise a village and to be a healthy church. Nehemiah chapter 1, 5 through 7. We jump into Nehemiah's prayer. The book begins with this prayer. And part of his prayer, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. 
before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted wickedly, very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant, Moses. I want us to hear this. Because in Nehemiah, you're going to see some leadership, whatever you want to call it, servanthood. You're going to see some action. You're going to see some uh, intent and initiative on his part. But before he rallies this village to rebuild a wall in 52 days, he does something that often is overlooked. He prays. He confesses. He goes to God first. In chapter 2, he's going to take this this kind of stealth look at the wall. He's going to go at night and he's going to look and kind of take a, a scope of what needs to be done in Jerusalem. He's going to witness the shambles of the city. But before he does that, I think this is so key. Before he plans, before he builds, before he recruits, before he calls families to work on the wall, he's honest. And I think what we see here in Nehemiah first is he has ability to teach us here through leadership that he names what is broken. That's something we can easily skip over. But in a church, we often can fall into these bad habits of name what is broken out there. But Nehemiah doesn't play that game. In fact, if you read through a lot of scripture, scripture doesn't play that. The New Testament writers don't go, well, look how bad Ephesus is. We'll never save it. What they do instead is they name what is wrong here. Nehemiah, in his prayer, acknowledges first what is broken. He calls out. He confesses to God what is off in his community. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear this, and I may have to repeat this a couple times, but any, this is important because any church or family that ignores their own brokenness, and parents think about this, any church or family that ignores their own brokenness forfeits their right to influence anybody. Right? Think about it. I'll just use a parenting example. Do as I say, not as I do. How's that ever worked out for you? Right? Kids can smell a hypocrite a mile away. And in church, that's so important. I think Nehemiah does something. He's showing us it's always been inside out. God always wants to work on the follower to call other followers, not to call the lost to somehow call the lost. He works on what's on the inside. And if we don't confess and name what's messy in here, then how can we ever help? Bless what's out there. So Nehemiah, before he addresses the brokenness of a city wall, addresses the brokenness of his own heart and the people's heart. The people had forgotten God. They had forsaken the poor. They had worshipped idols. They had turned away from the covenant. They had lost contact. Now I know that confession to church has this kind of feeling or this taste of bad news. It's a four-letter dirty word in church. The thought of us confessing and naming our own brokenness makes us squirm. But I believe that's probably not really the biblical 
reason. I think we've been given this steady diet in the modern church that confession tastes like soured milk, but that's not the truth of the Bible. We always think confession is what somebody else needs. But biblically, there's a steady diet biblically that what confession brings is healing. And that's what brokenness, when we name what is broken, what that does is it lays down a welcome mat of healed friendships, of restored relationship, of deeper connection in a family, in a church. Growth, we know this, right? Where is growth? Growth is always at the edge of my uncomfortability. It's always right there. And naming what is broken pushes me to that edge. See, in this room right now, there's people that struggle with lust and greed and stubbornness and anger and gossip and prejudice. And I know that because I'm only naming my sins right here. They're right here on the stage. But there is brokenness in here. And healing comes before building because it's inside out. So Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. He's confessed the sins of the people. He goes and he walks around, or he goes horseback actually, around the devastation. He sees that the walls are broken, that the gates are torn down, the city is exposed, it's in danger. There's guys threatening him from all sides, saying if you get to work. So skip to chapter 4 if you want to flip over there. And here's what he does next. We look at this story kind of from high altitude. Chapter 4. Then the Jews who lived there, lived near them, came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So they're facing this threat. And ten times over is the Old Testament way of telling you we heard it until we were blue in the face. We heard this over and over. We knew it every side. Ten times over, the number of completion. Ten, twelve, seven. Always complete number. So here's what Nehemiah does. The threats are full. They're complete. Couldn't get more threats. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by what? By families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked these things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them, of the threats. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And what we have here is Jerusalem, again, is the, the attack is imminent. It's coming. The wall's not built. And what was pointed out in our Bible class this morning is also true that the people weren't built. It's been 70 years since those people had been back. And what was left, most of them, that generation had passed away. So this wall is not built physically, but the community was not built spiritually. It was not repaired. And if they don't rebuild this wall, they don't only have an identity, they're going to have to flee from their homes. So this is an urgent and personal call. And Nehemiah, I love his strategy. He covers the wall in this strange way. He doesn't call up the army. He doesn't call up soldiers. He says, place families in the breaks. And I think this is such a great principle for the church. 
And it's not just the principle of, yes, we need to be family-oriented. I think what he's doing here is he's giving people something to do that they don't know how to do. I believe that is the true, the deep truth of what Nehemiah's leadership does. It's, I can't imagine that the people coming out of exile were really good at masonry or really good at shooting a bow or wielding a sword. He's putting families in these breaks. They aren't professional soldiers. They're not professional laborers. He's giving people who don't know what to do something to do. And that is a beautiful principle for how church should actually work. It's not a biblical idea that you should only do what you should or know how to do, right? Where does that happen in Scripture, right? God uses the clueless, right? God uses not the, those who are able throughout Scripture. He uses simply those who are willing. It's not those who have it all figured out. Went to all the seminars. Jesus sends out the 70, and I'm sure they're like, what are we doing? It's because of this principle. is the church as family exists to do things we don't know how to do. Because we are following a Holy Spirit who knows exactly what to do. Now, I want to illustrate this real quick. You've seen this before in the way that family works, right? Church and family. So... This is not to scale. I couldn't find a glass big enough to hold 3,000 liters or milliliters of water. But I want this to represent, the blue here is to represent the amount of time families will spend together. We're just going to use teens as an example. The average teenager, several years ago, it was estimated that every year they spend about 3,000 hours a year with their family. Okay? The average teenager also spends about only 52 hours a year in church. And we often want all the influence for church or for discipleship to come from which spot? This one, right? As if this 3,000 and 52 are somehow equal. And then what we end up doing because we lean into 52 hours instead of the 3,000 is we end up putting a lot of emphasis and a lot of pressure on these 52 things, right? That's why we judge church by if we should be there if we really think it's good for us or not, right? That's why we judge church by if I get anything out of it. It wasn't that great today. I didn't really get anything out of it. It's because we lean into we want this 52 hours to really matter, right? But here's the point. The point is it's not blue or yellow. The point is of Nehemiah is, well, yellow and blue. Ziploc taught me this when I was a kid, right? Yellow and blue together, when we combine the efforts of parents and we combine the efforts of the church, we get a whole different color. Whew, look at that. Turn green. I was a little nervous. All right. We get something completely different. And that is done when the church combines the efforts of the family at home and the church together, not to emphasize one or the other as if they're in opposition to each other, but to work together so that we disciple and everything we do is pointing towards Jesus. Now, what that requires is you got to learn to do something you don't know how to do. Does that mean I have to start teaching Bible class? Maybe. Does that mean I have to be around those stinky kids that are all donut and sugared up on Sunday mornings? We could use you. 
But really what it means is I want to be a person that understands that God is not looking for me to figure it out. God's just willing for me, ready for me just to go, I'm ready. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He places people in the breaks of the walls, not because they're experts, but because he knows the value of family working together with the mission of God, not in opposition. Now, finally, I do want to mention one more thing. And it doesn't come from the text that we haven't read. It comes from the text that we've already read because I think what Nehemiah is doing here is he's giving the people something that goes beyond just a moment. And that's what we call significant faith. What Nehemiah does in the story is he doesn't see church or the people of God as just a place where religious goods and services are doled out like McDonald's value meals. What he sees the church as or the people of God as is a place to build significant faith. And what do I mean by significant faith? I don't mean what kind of we are into in our culture. Significance in our culture only has value if you have a major platform in this world, right? Like you have to have 100,000 subscribers on YouTube now to be considered uh, worthy of getting, making money on YouTube, okay? So we have 431 subscribers to the Canadian Church of Christ YouTube page. We are a long ways away from 100,000, all right? Share friends, you know, anyway, no, I'm just kidding, all right? All right? That's a long ways away. We only think something is significant if it is huge, right? I don't think that's what Nehemiah is teaching here. It's not about how many people saw somebody stand at the wall and protect Jerusalem and build that 35-foot wall. It was the fact that they did it. It was who they built with and who they became as they built it. Now, for years, I used to love to show around Christmas time the on-the-road video with the secret Santa guy. You guys remember those videos? The guy that would go out and he had the red hat on? And I know that this is, a, this is cheap preaching because you can just go watch one of these videos and it's always awesome. But this year I couldn't get away with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't during Christmas that I found this video. It was later. And Mr. Brown, with a middle school class, middle school and upper elementary class, he's been working on trying to find some significance for these kids. And I want you guys just to watch this video real quick. And I think what we'll see in this is how you build significance and other people. Here's a quick video from CBS. The red caps were the only clue. Yeah. The only hint that something Christmas was afoot. Something that would soon strike straight to the heart. Are you guys serious? Seriously? <laughs> the kids responsible for these moments of overwhelming joy are all students and former students of Derek Brown, What's the license? a Phoenix elementary teacher who uses our on-the-road stories to teach kindness and character. A perennial favorite, Secret Santa. That wealthy businessman who every year gives out hundreds of hundred-dollar bills to random strangers. It's impossible. This is impossible. It is possible. It's true. Watching Secret Santa do his thing made a huge impression on the kids. I was like shocked. 
Because, well, who does that? I've never seen anyone, like, give, just give money away like that. Could you imagine that someday it would be you? No, not ever. And so, with guidance from Mr. Brown, I sent everybody an itinerary. The kids started a secret Santa club and began fundraising, calling friends, family, and businesses. They raised $8,000 without any help from their school or district, just so they could turn around and give it all away. The people like Rose Marie Hernandez. Rose Marie had been out of work for a week. notice a couple things. First of all, I just want to give a shout out to Mr. Brown because anybody that organizes kids with an itinerary is a man after my own heart. <laughs> right? He must be a, he just must be a man of God. I don't know. No. <laughs> but I also want you to notice this. We think significant faith is big faith. Huge, wonderful. But that's not significant faith. Significant faith is doing what you can. Parents, you want to give your kids a significant faith? Name what is broken in you and do things you don't know how to do. That's it. Well, what's that look like, Jake? I don't know. Do something. That's what Nehemiah does. He takes brokenness in the wall. He sees a need and he feels it and he goes, you know who can do that? We got people who can do that. And that memory of that experience is what makes it significant. It's passing out money just like our teens do at Christmas. It's going and raking leaves. It's going on, on Go Weekend and going maybe a little bit beyond Go Weekend into getting to know the people we serve. It's taking it to a different level. See, if there's any gaps in the wall of the church, capital C, there's probably a lot. But if there's a big one that's causing people to walk away from Jesus, it's often broken parts of the church that are self-inflicted. And they exist because we have taken the significance and adventure out of following Jesus. We've made following Jesus riskless and safe. And in my experience, 
And I don't know if it's yours, but in my experience, lack of passion and lack of fire for Jesus is not the result of getting fed. Lack of passion and fire and significance is the result of not feeding others. Just like those kids experienced in the video. I've never felt like this before. Why? Because you're made to do things you don't know how to do. You're made to give yourself away. Jesus died for us so that we could be saved, we could be redeemed, that we could serve the world. The church is at its best when it gives itself away. Jesus did not die for a group of people to go to church services. He died for the church to be a service to the world. He died to form a new humanity, to create a new story. So let me just finish with this. Grandparents and great-grandparents, give us your best. There is no retirement plan in the kingdom of God. Give us your wisdom. Give us your knowledge. Share your experience. Lead us from that place. Spend time with these young people. Parents, let's recommission ourselves. We know that you're busy. Your job is hard. But stand with what matters most. Fight parents for the right priorities because if you don't, they will be sucked away from you quicker and you'll look back and go, what did I do? Amen? Empty nesters, you know what I'm talking about? They'll be taken from you. So fight for those Fill in the gaps of the wall with your energy. Create adventures for your kids. And our young people, young parents, teenagers, to the teens, I've said this before, but I need to keep saying it. We apologize to you as teens. We may not have told you this. When I was a kid, I was told I was the future of the church. I don't think we say that anymore. But I think we sometimes say that without saying. We leave you on the sidelines. Church is not something that waits in the wings. You're the church now. So give us your energy, creativity. Give us your passion. Give us a hard time. Ask questions. Be thorns in our sides to push us. And to our children, stand at the gaps with us. Because the kingdom belongs to you. Show us your hearts. Our kids teach us, don't they, church? If you haven't been listening to the prayers that happen up here almost every Sunday, you've missed out on some lessons. But most of all, church family, let's name what is broken. Let's go on some adventures together. Let's be of a significant faith because we're not afraid to do things we don't know how to do. Because I trust that God is bigger. The one who could raise somebody from the dead can surely get me to talk to somebody else about my faith. Right? Those two are kind (laughs) of, right? So may we just continue to follow. Nehemiah gives us the way. If you need anything this morning, we're here for you. Let's stand and let's sing with Barry. Lord of light, hearts unfold like flowers before thee. Opening to the sun above, melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away, giver of immortal gladness, fill us with.